Hello, everybody. Hello, Simon. Today we are with Alex Starter. Dr. Alex Starter is a director at Turgensec, and uh, today he's going to tell us about his uh, duty and his uh, background and history. Hi, Alex. How are you? Hey, not too bad. Thanks, Glad. How are you doing? Very, very good. Thanks, and good to have you again. Thanks. Um, Hi, Simon. Hi, Alex. Good to have you. Thanks for joining. So, Alex, by viewing at your LinkedIn page, it's uh, pretty obvious that you have a very, very rich history and uh, present and future within the cybersecurity industry. It would be very nice to begin with maybe a quick introduction of what you're doing and what have you done before. Sure. Well, you say rich history. I just say I can't stick at any one thing long enough to sort of make it a career. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I've, I've always loved how computers work. I love solving puzzles, and I think that's what got me into, like most people, you kind of fall into cybersecurity out of a love of computers and how they work, and then trying to work out, oh, if they work this way, how can I make them work in a different way? And through that, I ended up doing a lot of cybersecurity, being the technical lead on cybersecurity strategy. So when a company's trying to understand what should I invest in, I really have to help understand what the entire market looks like, what are different technologies, what is a business good at? And then where can they sort of develop? Where's the next cool thing coming out of? And as a result of doing that, I kind of, again, fell into doing a lot more in terms of industrial control of cybersecurity. So doing a lot of not concentrating too much on the enterprise IT side and much more on, okay, the big systems that make our world go around, trains, planes, automobiles, power stations, that kind of stuff. And I've made a career out of really looking at doing that. And then as a result of doing that for a large aerospace and defense company in Europe, I got talking to a few people. In the UK, we have a government scheme by the National Cybersecurity Center called Cyber First, where they're encouraging people and young kids all the way through to university to get into cybersecurity. And they had an open day where they invited in, you know, people from industry to come and speak. I did that. And at the end, I put my hand up and said, well, if anybody has any questions or wants some help in the industry, get in touch. And two people after that got in touch and kept pestering me and they because they just founded a company, Turgensec, to do some really interesting stuff. And I got chatting with them, found out what they were doing and went, oh, actually, that's pretty neat. That's really cool. And it's something I hadn't really seen a lot of in my day job. So with permission from my normal day job, I end up sort of moonlighting as a director of Turgensec in addition to running a team of cyber consultants and doing secure by design and resiliency in operational technology areas. That's so cool. All right. That's quite a lot. That's, <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, a lot, a lot to process. <laughs> yeah. It's been a really interesting time. And I have to say, I've had a unique element within cybersecurity of not being focused on the day-in, day-out vulnerability management of IT systems. It's normally been much more resiliency, secure by design, operational technology systems, that side, and then general sort of open source intelligence and out onto the internet. When you're talking about resiliency, you're talking about organizational resiliency, not necessarily uh, the technologies in question. You're talking about designing organizations that where all of their parts are... are supporting each other and are capable of absorbing a shock, whether it's a cyber attack or, or any kind of... Uh, Brilliant. Love it, Simon. Shock. Absolutely. It's 
although I say it's not just organizational, because there is an element of organizational element, you're right, but there's also technology and process in there as well. The way I like to think of it is in the operational technology, we talk a lot about safety. You know, oh God, if something goes wrong and it could kill somebody, it could injure somebody. So normally when you have an absolutely critical process that has to work, and if it doesn't work, bad things happen, you normally increase the sort of reliability of that through the use of redundancy. So you'd have two or three different ones, and that will get you that sort of reliability and that will address safety. But when it comes to cyber side, of course, redundancy isn't the solution because if you can take out one system with a cyber incident or vulnerability one, all you're doing is replicating, okay, I'm now going to take it down in five seconds, not one. So you know, redundancy isn't the solution. So how else do you design your system so that in the event of a cyber incident, you can continue to produce, continue to run? A really good example of that is, you know, we saw really recently with Colonial Pipeline, where, yeah, an IT, you know, they got ransomware into their IT systems. It did not make it onto their OT pipeline, but they couldn't run their business. Why? Because the IT side ran their billing, ran their logistics, ran everything. Exactly. And so it was that system interdependency that caused a business lack of resiliency. But how do you solve that? And you can solve that through designing the systems to operate better, having multiple locations where that data may exist. You can solve it technically. You can also solve it procedurally, where in certain cases, if you're in a power industry, you may go, you know, say, well, go manual. All right? We saw in the Ukraine. Exactly, exactly. And we saw, in fact, we saw that in the Ukraine during the black energy attacks, which took out their power stations, that Ukraine was able to actually recover quite well because they just went out there and they had enough suitably qualified people to go out with radios on site and they start flicking switches and transformers manually. They went manual. My concern when going to talk to customers is, you know, you ask them, can you go manual? And they're like, oh, well, no, we concentrate so much on efficiency. We've built our systems to be so efficient, just in time manufacturing, just in time things, that as soon as you throw one wrench in or one person die, you know, wins the lottery and doesn't come in, well, guess what? You're not very resilient. In fact, you're fragile. And it's pretty interesting because during the pandemic, couldn't, you know, forget about very, very, not so rare even, but not so usual as well, um, examples of uh, critical infrastructure, but also like healthcare institutions being under attack and not being able to accept new patients. And uh, I can recall like one example of a hospital in, in Germany, I suppose, that actually like a patient died waiting to be, to, to be accepted due to a ransomware attack. And it's not that the medical devices went down, it's ju- the system for patient acceptance that went down. And so I, I couldn't stop thinking about what you said about thinking about procedures, not only about the, the security of your devices and your systems, but is it also part of your job? I mean, or our job as you know, security researchers or security personnel as vendors and so on? Like, do we also need to think about it? Yeah, I think you do. And I think as, a, as an industry, 
And it's kind of filtered from the product level through to even the way we do risk assessments. We have a tendency to view everything in terms of the integrity, confidentiality, and availability of individual assets. I mean, when you do your risk assessments, a lot of the risk assessment methodologies start with the, let's decompose everything into individual assets and then mark how critical they are and what's the impact due to a loss of CIA of that asset. And so we have a tendency to take a complex system and divide up individual assets. And the same thing when it comes to a product, while we look at our systems, then we divide them all the way down into, well, no, they're individual security controls, and those controls are embedded in a device. So we we have a tendency to deconstruct the complex into individual elements. When it comes to doing the risk, we'll then identify risks associated with that. But what we miss is all of the interdependencies, or in terms of a complex system, you always end up with emergent behavior. And emergent behavior has its own type of risk. And those are when we have sort of system-driven risks. And so I think as a, the, a good analogy I always like to use is, can you build a really strong wall out of strong bricks? Well, yes, you can, but you can also build a really crappy wall with you know really good bricks because you can build it with a giant hole in the middle or you cannot use the right type of cement. So our way of dividing up and having really good security products is like the same as saying, I have got the world's best bricks. Brilliant. But have you put them together into a wall which actually fit for purpose or can I push on the wall and the whole thing falls over? That's where we need to start to get to. And that's where I start to, I like to you know move past just talking about in the operational domain talking not just about cyber risk, but cyber resiliency, because it's normally about how can I recover? Can a cyber incident stop my production? Which is a complex, big thing with lots of system interdependencies. So does that mean you're, you're systematically running two intellectual tracks when you're designing a system? One that's, one that's manual, one that's digital? Or do you identify... You know, or, or, or do you have a sort of branching where, where you know that if a system fails or if it's incapacitated for, you know, because of an attack or ransomware or, or an extortion, you have uh, something to, to fall back on? How do you design that? Do you have, I mean, a single person designing that or two people thinking about the same outcome, but with different means to get there? One being heavily reliant on the infrastructure in place and one being able to make do without. Unfortunately, it's a team sport. And the reason why I say that is when you're designing a system, fundamentally, when I talk about these system interdependencies, you need to understand how the business works. Because almost invariably, the in industrial control systems or OT technology, you know, operational technology, the technology is there to interact with the real world and to achieve a business outcome. You know, power station generating electrons fundamentally, and selling those electrons out onto the grid. You know, a train, well, you've got to get passengers on there, but you've also got to handle ticketing and then get everybody on there and to display the information out onto their, everybody's journey to our planners. So there are 102 interconnected elements to a system. So practically what we do is we start by sitting down, and this is no different than any other sort of part of the uh, system design process. Understand the context. What are you trying to achieve? Then you've got to, once you understand that context and you understand the business drivers, you, you, know, you map all that together and that's, you create those use stories. You then try and work out, okay, what are the security drivers? What happens when those business objectives don't get met? What do you need to achieve? And from there, you can start to derive the 
big principles and security objectives of the system. And especially trying to identify where those annoying system interdependencies are. Once you have that sort of stuff well mapped out, you can then fall down into the design process. And that's really hard to do because almost everybody wants to jump straight into design. And when I say design, that means choosing the technologies, starting to think about how we're going to solve the problem instead of saying, no, 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 conceptually, what do you measure success as? So once you have that architecture, then, yeah, you start falling into the design process. But that's invariably where you'll end up with competing design constraints. You may say, you know what, I want to have confidentiality of information. I want it between two points. Um, and I want to make sure nobody else can sort of see the, see the data as it flows. Perfect. Well, throw it over an HTTPS tunnel. Oh, excellent. Tick. Everybody's happy with that. Until somebody waves, you know, waves the hand and says, okay, you've now got certificates there. Do you need mutual authentication or just client-to-server authentication? Do you need certificates at both ends? Oh, actually, you're right. We need to identify which endpoint it we're talking to, not just a generic any endpoint. Okay, so you can have individual certificates. Okay. Then it's a question of certificate management, and that's includes a revocation, checking the authenticity, making sure there's time. So now every certificate has a not valid before and not valid after timestamp and an addresser for where either the OSCP server is to do certificate status checking, or it might be there's a CRL link. So there's all that stuff built in. So then you ask the business question, what happens if the end device can't reach out to validate the certificate of the server it wants to talk to? Does it fail closed or fail or just fail open? Well, most people have already just stopped at the, you know what, it's great, we'll just throw it over the HTTPS tunnel. Woohoo, we're moving on. It's those elements and those edge cases that is really where resiliency lies. Because if you have that system, if I can take it out by either jamming the ability to reach out to the certificate validation site, or I can inject the wrong year and cause every device to end up with, an, you know, thinking it's 1978, in which case all the certificates are not valid yet. I did see something on your website that really caught my attention, uh, and it was uh, first principle technical innovation. You know, that, that first principle thinking applied to cybersecurity, I, I think it's unfortunately quite, quite novel in a way. Uh, I mean, the experience most people have right now of, of designing cyber defense is just adding layers of complexity upon layers of complexity, never really asking why. Why are we trying to protect you know, such thing? What's the implication? What are the interdependencies? And I think rethinking challenges from their origin is, is what you're describing here. Trying to understand the actual weight of a decision within a, a very complex process. And uh, I mean, it sounds like it sounds very exhausting to be honest. <laughs> just, just mapping out those processes. I'm, sh I'm sure most people you talk to just have no idea because they've, they've probably never mapped it out. Just business are being, you know, built incrementally. You know, most of the time they're successful, they start small and then just things are added up and built up and, you know, they're, you they're, never have a, a cycle. Yeah. yeah. So, there's no such thing as greenfield sites. There's just a new integration of an old brownfield. Either it's the old brownfield approach that you've slightly mm -hmm. modified, deployed, or you're absolutely right, Simon. It's the same things that's been built up, built up, and you just keep piling on more stuff on top of the old stuff, which is how, as I said, you end up with those really interesting emergent behaviors and interdependencies. And so the majority of my job 
with my day job is spent really teasing those out and trying to understand, right, how do you actually work? What's the requirements? And trying to sort of help people think of that from that perspective, cybersecurity isn't a technical problem or, you know, you don't need to be technical to really understand, to help solve it. What you need to understand is how does the business operate? And where is the business? Because fundamentally, the businesses change from using human power to using machine power. You know, they've taken a human's job, or once it was done by a human, and said, actually, we're going to automate that. So you've taken that reliance out. And at, a lot of the time, I, I hate using the analogy of HR, but a lot of the time we have HR to look after the humans. But we've now automated so much that we now have a whole load of technology rely on. And cybersecurity is almost becoming a bit more like the HR for machines. Let me look after you. Let me sort of work out who's going to contact you. There is no right or wrong answer. And there is no 100% right way of looking at the problem or handling your machine. But the update, the patching frequency, how often do you need to you know, do your upskilling and need to update your firmware? Well, that's just, it depends. And it all comes back to that business side. When you talk right. to clients, you're, you're basically that that annoying kid who just always asks, but why? why? But why? why? Why are you doing this? Because, but then why? And then you go layer upon layer of justification in a way. Explain Absolutely. to me why this is critical to your business. Maybe it isn't. And especially in the case of machines, so much of it is hidden from the business. They don't question it. It's a hundred percent. And so much of it is learned behaviors and you just assume. So everything's just an assumption. I say those emergent behaviors is you rely on a system just working and you stop thinking about it because it's just there. And that reliance and that sort of built behaviors causes bad practices. And so what I generally try and do is shake up those bad practices. Um, So another good example of that is uh, with Turgensec, um, we have this attack management tool, which essentially is going out and looking at an organization and identifying, if I'm an attacker, what is the weak points of your infrastructure? Now, if I talk to the IT team first, I can guarantee you they'll come back and say, this is my attack footprint. This is what it looks like. And here's the IP address ranges. And I'll, they'll tell me anywhere from a third to two thirds of their actual footprint. And they're really confident of that about that area. Why? Because that's the stuff they look in day in, day out. Anytime a patch comes out, that's the stuff they look at. They are just so conditioned to constantly looking at the same things that they forget the shadow IT, the orphaned assets, the sort of the stuff, legacy stuff, which they've forgotten about at the edges that they suddenly go, ah, hang about. I should, you know, I forgot, completely forgot about that. And so when we go in and we then look a much wider and we identify all those other orphan assets, which test systems that they accidentally configured with, um, they accidentally configured with test data, which, you know, not apparently not real data, but almost nobody uses completely new test data. Test data just means old real data. They normally have stood that up and left that and forgotten about it and moved on and it comes back later. That's the stuff that bites them. So constantly challenging them and saying, what about this stuff over here? That's normally where I say I find it most interest in cybersecurity. Don't tell me what I already know. Tell me something I don't know or have forgotten about. Sorry, I think I went down a rabbit hole on that one, Gilad. (laughs) Bring us back. I think it's really interesting and actually aligned with, you know, this approach is aligned pretty much with the, you know, when you are under attack, it's it's never from the places that you could have imagined that you would be. 
as you said, this uh, shadow IT, this weak application, or even, you know, recently we have lots of uh, supply chains. So you don't really think of, you know, the way that you will be under attack the next time or about the breach where, where the attack will come from. So that's very interesting. But speaking about what you do and how you got into it, I mean, I am jealous about the fact you just went out there, spoke to people, got yeah. very interested about what they do and just joined them. That's pretty cool. It's a challenge within our industry because there was an old sort of fun saying about sort of computer engineers, cryptographers. How do you know an introverted computer engineer while well, they look at their shoes? How do you know an extroverted computer engineer while well, they look at the other person's shoes. You know, it's that kind of, we're not known for being the most gregarious out there people. So you're right, when it comes to trying to get a job or network, it's something that's typically not aligned with the way we normally go out, you know, and interact. You didn't get into computers because you love talking to people. You got into computers because you find the way they interact interesting. So my advice for people trying to get into the industry, and I know there's been a lot of discussions online, et cetera, for certifications. How, you know, if I want to get into cybersecurity, what do I need to do? Do I need to be a, you know, have all this sort of time? And it's impossible to have 10 years experience for a job that has only been going two years. So you can't get into senior level, contain your cybersecurity. Well, you've got to have 10 years experience. I don't even know if containers have been that big and around for 10 years. So how'd you, how'd you manage that? I always say I'm looking for passion first, the behaviors first. And then I'm looking for sort of technical know-how second. So to me, those things that kind of jump out is I'll ask somebody in sort of an interview, first of all, hey, what was something recently in the news that you found really interesting? I want to see their eyes light up and then talk about, oh, yeah, this is really, really cool. That to me is somebody I go, cool, that's what makes you shine. And then I want to try and find out, okay, how much technical knowledge or how do you learn? So if I understand how you learn and if you have the ability to teach yourself and you're passionate, well, I can give you all the experience you need. That's the easy part. Companies have bags of experience because we'll put you onto a job that makes you do it and I pick it so, up. But I can't teach behaviors. So curiosity and passion are not just keywords for you. you just, you, you're truly looking for that in, in your people, right? Absolutely. Because as you know, even, I mean, I know glad you were saying you do a lot of threat intelligence, just trying to understand why, constantly understand why is the attacker trying to do this? Or if they get in reverse malware analytics, trying to understand what the heck is it trying to do? What were they trying to achieve? What does it do? It's always asking that question, why, 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 why? And at certain steps, if you are uninspired by the work, you just don't care about the answer. But if you're passionate about it, you're going to be there late till two in the morning going, you know, I really want to know the answer. So I would prefer when I hire people, I prefer to try and force them to go home <laughs> than to try, you know, I don't care about clock watching. I normally have to force people to not work hard rather than sort of keep them in the office and work and stay in hours, mainly because you give them something they enjoy doing and they'll carry on doing it. The other, the other piece of advice I always say is, I've heard from, I think Richard Branson said it, which is he always tries to hire people to do his job. And I do the same thing at work. I want to hire people smarter, better, and more capable of doing my job than me because that frees me up to do other things. So that frees me up to then go chat. So as I said, when I got a chat to these guys at Turgensec, they just finished university, had some interesting ideas, and they decided, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to do it. They had that passion. They said, you know, I'm going to start at my company. The first thing they did was start harassing people. 
hey, can you come and help look after this? Can you help work? They weren't afraid to ask. And I think that's the sort of, that's how you get ahead. And so I'm just always in awe of working with these guys because they work stupid hours putting their life and soul into this amazing product and solutions. And I just kind of try and keep up where possible going, this is amazing. <laughs> but without that passion, you never get quite get there. It's far greater than they were not scared. They were brave because, I mean, in Israel, we have so many cybersecurity startups. I, I don't need to tell about it. And I do know some people that, you know, left very fancy jobs in fancy tech companies for a startup that they had it, this idea and they just went for it. I think it's pretty brave. It's far more than, you know, I'm not scared to, you know, maybe to lose my monthly salary. It's actually make something come true and you don't really know the, the actual result of it. It could be a, a massive failure or you're going to be very successful and maybe make some money. <laughs> yeah. So it's, well, the good thing about cybersecurity, even if your company fails, you're not going to be hard pressed to get another job because the whole world is crying out for more cybersecurity people. And so, yeah, now is the one of the best times to try and get into either starting up your own company or, or getting into the area because there's just not enough skill sets out there. If you heard some of our episodes, you or the listeners, we've, we've been speaking to different people around the globe from the industry, and it's pretty interesting to, to, to hear about the, the way startups and, and small companies, that you know, the, the first baby steps they do and how they initiated their, their business and so on. I just had a question. It might be stupid, but still... Do you think that your location, like your geographical location, counts when it when it comes to reaching out to potential customers, like pitching and so on? I think COVID changed a lot. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, I think you're right. Whenever you do customer briefings, we had it in our heads. You've got to be there in person. You've got to make that relationship face-to-face, -face, et cetera. Well, in COVID, that was forbidden. So suddenly, you could reach out to anybody. So what's the good thing about that is it's suddenly allowed, it's taken the pressure away to see people in person. And so a little bit, no matter where you are in the world, you can decide, you know what, I'm going to reach out to this person. So we've had, during lockdown, we've had really good conversations with the pharmaceutical company in the States, with a large consumer goods company and food manufacturer in, in Europe. And we didn't have to get that in person. We could do that all remotely. And hopefully, it's going to keep up that way. But I think in terms of your the other bit of where you are, I'm still constantly amazed America has such a big startup culture because things like healthcare costs are going to kill you. So that's why it's a young person's game in, in the States is because you, you know without healthcare, you're doomed if you get sick. So I think... You know, other countries, especially in Europe, where you have socialized healthcare, you have a little bit more availability. You know, it's, it's easier to take on that personal risk and start up that company. And I know the EU plows a huge amount of money, and there are so many startup accelerators, which will, again will provide funding to people with good ideas. What we need to teach people to do is not just have an idea, but how to access the resources to make their company a success. I have some friends and family 
that, uh, you know, people that, you know, in Israel, you go to the army. And if you are lucky, then you are part of uh, very elite intelligence units that also train you to become cybersecurity personnel and so on. And they can just, you know, go out of the army and start working for our, the best uh, technology companies all around the globe and so on. Many of them would say, I don't need a degree. I won't go and spend three to six years in, at a university on, you know, studying computer science, engineering, whatever, in order to end up in the same company because I am already trained to be a very good programmer or a security researcher and so on. As a doctor, <laughs> what do you think about it? Is it like um, this new approach of maybe skipping school and just you know use the training you, ever, you already have and go out there and start a career? Is it something that you support or you know, would you do that instead of that? It's an interesting. Yeah, and I think it's, it's changed a lot. I think, well, for start, the, the field of cybersecurity is, is large. There's so much times I have to train here, even in my own company, that cybersecurity is not done by a cyber person. It's done by a variety of cyber people. It's a lot like saying, well, I just need an engineer. Well, okay, but do you mean a hardware engineer, a software engineer? Do you need a systems engineer, a network engineer? I mean, not you can dabble in a little bit of the, all the areas, but really sometimes you need an expert in one or so areas. So cybersecurity isn't just about pen testers, which you're right. You don't need to go to university to be a pen tester. You might want to do a bit more formalized learning when it comes to if you want to be a good security architect, because you'll need to understand understand uh, the SAPSA methodology, for instance, and you need to understand at a high level how all things work. You don't have to go to university to do that. You can do it yourself. But what university sometimes does is it teaches you how to, how to learn. I know it sounds silly, but I don't know about your, your schools in Israel or in France, Simon, but in the UK, we have a tendency to be taught how to pass tests. You get, here's the piece of information you need to learn, learn it, apply it, do it. They don't teach you how to research and find, your, find the answers for yourself. So going back to really what I need in cybersecurity is I need passion. I need people who will teach themselves, who will go off and find and understand and play around. And you have a bit more freedom to do that at university to try and find out the answers where you're not handheld as much. And that's what I find interesting. So if people want to do universities, at the end, I would normally, in an interview, want to find out what was your project and what was your thesis and what was your final year thing on? What did you find at the end of all of that? Apply those efforts to what did you learn? Because that's, again, what I'm trying to buy. I'm trying to hire is the behaviors, not the knowledge. So do you go to university and you come out with your degree in cybersecurity or computer science? Great. I will hire you because A, you've already got a lot of that knowledge under your belt. But yeah, you can go out to the open market. You can join straight out of school, not go to university, and get the same knowledge somewhere else. In fact, you could do online courses. You can do Udemy and get all these amazing courses online. That's fantastic. But I can't teach you behaviors. I can't teach you that discipline to stick with something and stick with it for a long period of time and then achieve it and do the hard things. And more importantly, yeah, more importantly, I can't teach you to be around people smarter than you are. And I think that's one of the good things about university was 
you have a tendency to sometimes think, oh, I'm amazed, you know, I'm pretty smart in my own school. Yep, I can solve problems. That's easy. I like putting people into a bigger circumstance where you're going to run into people who are smarter than you or are able to solve problems quicker than you in different areas. And how do you respond to that? Do you respond positively or do you get dejected? Sorry, long-winded explanation to your answer, but yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. So I just thought that you know, from your view, I, I might find in your ideal organization maybe you know two types, like the the ones that were curious and, and uh, went out of you know trainings and just jumped in and and started their career, and they were curious and and passionate to just start and knowledgeable enough to 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 start with the experience they already have and some others that also took it to an ac- academic career but from what i understand from you is it, it's not that you care about a title you care about you know the the experience and passion knowledge and so on the the overall score of of or all of them together yeah we hire as many graduates as we do apprentices and what that means is apprenticeships will come out of your school or potentially they'll have a completely different career. And they suddenly will say, you know what? I want to get into doing cyber. They could be, we've had apprentices who are working in retail at the moment, but want to get into it. Perfect. I don't care. So that goes back to that saying, you can go for academia. You can go straight for an apprenticeship or getting an entry-level job. Makes no difference because how you get ahead is by wanting to understand how computers work and how they can be made to work in new and innovative ways that the designer never anticipated. And that's something you can't ever teach. So for me, the most practical thing, even with a university graduate, is I want to ask them, do you own a Raspberry Pi or something similar or an Arduino or something? And if not, why not? And what do you do on your own home Wi-Fi system, You know, your own home network? What do you do there? For instance, if you're married, has your partner shouted at you because you were playing around and wanted to sort of black hole the DNS ad blades, you know, put in a pie hole and black hole the, or the DNS traffic to ad sites, and it suddenly stopped one of their sites or something else working? If you it haven't been shouted at all the time, exactly. If you haven't been shouted at by your partner, you know, you're not trying hard enough. <laughs> yeah, you don't just don't love the game enough, <laughs> but. A really good example of that within Turgensek is we have one of the founders of this. He did geography at university. Now, he's brilliant at the open source intelligence, does some fantastic stuff, and is able to run an entire one of our product lines. But he came with a geography degree. Now, did we hold that against him? Absolutely not. But do we take the mick out of him for it? Oh, yeah, all the time. Absolutely. But, you know, you know but that's why I say... It, we require people from lots of different backgrounds, ways of thinking, and innovative ways of solving problems. I think right now you're in a position to, I mean, and you've probably observed that many times in, in your career, but you're seeing an idea become a company, become you know an organization, a business, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I meet lots of founders uh, at various stages of their developments, and, and a lot of them are just not enjoying the responsibilities of running a business, being CEOs. It's it's completely different from what you know drove them to to create their company. Do you feel like it, it's a necessary evil when when you're when you're you know you're a great designer, you're a great engineer, a great researcher, you have this idea you start your business. Is it is it a necessary evil to be fully in charge and be the CEO? Or is it rather a distraction and something that you wish they didn't have to worry about because it 
it becomes their daily lives. They're running a business. They have to worry about so many things where their creativity is not being used, where their, their energy is, is being depleted. And that's not necessarily what they're best at. They now have to become business leaders. No matter how inspirational they are, they may be great leaders, but doesn't mean they need to become business leaders. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I think it's personality driven. So absolutely, there is a certain amount of knowledge and problem solving to just running a business. So just, I mean, sorting out pension schemes to sorting out office locations, at what point do you hire people and at what salary? And then, oh, there, you know, the HR elements, there is a lot behind that element of running a company, which is separate from the actual product strategy and company strategy. And so, I will say that within any organization, I think you definitely need somebody who is the the strategic lead. When it comes down to it, the decisions about your company normally revolve around, what do I invest my limited resources in? And within a startup, you constantly pivot, you find new ways of working, you have new profit centers, new lines of business. Inevitably, some customers saying, I want this, I want this. You only have a small, finite amount of time, of people, and resources. So what you really need the CEO to do is to say, which of my children, business lines, is going to get the love this time, and which one I'm going to let starve. And that's a tough thing, but that's fundamentally. The mechanics of running a business, you're right, you probably need somebody else and bring in somebody else to actually handle the mechanics, the financials, the HR, accountancy, legal elements, commercial elements. Because if you're a brand new CEO and have never worked in an organization, there's normally way too much institutional knowledge that you don't have that will actually suck away your time. But as the CEO, as one of the founders, don't lose sight of what your real goal is, which is the strategic. Where am I going to allocate my resources, which is typically money and people? How come you do all this stuff all together? I mean, you know, I work in one full-time job as team lead. And I also work out a little, go out for runs, have some time to watch TV and, you know, eat, eat in a restaurant with my fiance in Tel Aviv. But I, I want to learn also to play tennis. But I, I sure don't have also time to, to become a director in a, in, a, in a startup. How do you do that? Well, I didn't say I did any of them well. I mean, just because I have them down, you know, you'll have to ask my colleagues as to whether or not I'm actually doing them well. But You're at least trying, I mean. I'm at least trying. (laughs) Throughout my career, I have balanced on the fence between business and technical. I love the technology. I love solving the problems. I just love that aspect. I'm also intrigued, just like I, I, well, I love puzzle solving. So just as much as I love solving the technical puzzle, I love trying to understand how the heck a business works and understanding that element. And I've had a drive to try and start up my own company. And so throughout my career, I've tried to balance that point and wherever possible, not stray too far into one or the other. So at my day job at the moment, I'm the CTO for the cyber part of their consulting business. So I look after the technical delivery of all the cyber consulting work. But then I'm also in charge of building resiliency and into all the rest of the product lines across Talish UK. The majority of it is actually a business challenge of how to get the other businesses to adopt cyber into what they do, which is really interesting. And then in the evening, and it was much easier during lockdown when, okay, I didn't have to commute anywhere. 
So, and I wasn't going anywhere. So actually the, that sort of time I could put into supporting as a director in Turgensack. But I have to say as a director, what I'm doing in the company is mentoring and providing support and some of the sales and business development. And actually a lot of the sales stuff, which I don't do in my day job and leave all the technical stuff to the other co-founders. So it actually plays a nice colliery between my day job. I leave all the business side of my day job to somebody else and I do the technical. And then the evenings, I get to switch and let somebody else is throughout the day worrying about the technical and I'm there worrying about business. I could only hear that you're missing the lockdown. Yeah. This is all I hear. You're missing more free time. Well, I think the, the biggest challenge we had on lockdown was I didn't realize the Venn diagram between how much the stuff my wife finds interesting on Netflix and what I find interesting on Netflix is much smaller than I thought it was. You learn so much about yourself, your family, your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You're you're as interested in the business as you are in in the technology. What do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) That's usually what we ask. You know, where do you see yourself going with that? Do you, you just, you just, keep doing what you're doing, you enjoy it so much that it doesn't really matter? Or do you have ultimately a goal? Do you want to acquire specific knowledge in order to build something or, or, or to become something in particular? Do you want to impact policy making? Do you want to... Where, where do you see yourself um, yeah, go? Oh God, this feels like a job great. interview, Simon. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's a, it's a good question. The honest answer is, I have no idea that what I enjoy doing is understanding a problem and then trying to find an interesting way of solving it. And a lot of times that involves technology and cybersecurity, sort of cyber vulnerabilities, but it can also be in business. So as long as the problems I'm solving are interesting, I keep doing what I'm doing. If something else pops up that it goes, ooh, that's quite interesting, then I'm, you know, that's the time when I might want to switch careers, switch doing something different. So long-term in the far, far future, the idea of doing more mentoring and non-exec directorships is the more most interesting stuff. Can I help a business with a problem? Come up with an interesting idea. And I still, I mentor a lot of people today and I find that really rewarding and fascinating work because you're helping people think about how they want to solve their problems. So at the moment, I'm really, I'm fascinated by with, with Turingsec, the fact that you come with an interesting idea, then you have to pivot and you find a new market and then something else interesting comes up. And it's that constant finding and solving problems in really interesting ways is what fundamentally drives me. So what do I want to be when I grow up? Not bored, fundamentally, <laughs> I think is the easiest answer. I mean, you don't sound like uh, you're at risk of being bored. You sound very, very <laughs> passionate about what you do. So I'm not worried there. And also, uh, I couldn't ignore the fact that you're, you're speaking about, a lot about mentoring and uh, you have some uh, past in the academia. Would you also consider lecturing? Is it something that you would do in the academia? It, sure. Actually, my wife jokes that I would be great in that field, mainly because the idea of standing up and talking at people. <laughs> oh, yeah, love it. You know, oh, this whole idea of conversations where it's a back and forth. Oh, I'm not so sure about that. But if I can just speak at somebody, oh, brilliant. Love it. <laughs> so, yeah, in my day job, I do a lot of work with academia at the moment. 
we sponsor a number of PhDs and a lot of industry and industrial engagements with different academic institutions. So yeah, I really enjoy working with them. With every job, there's always politics in any job you go into. There's always paperwork. There's always stuff that's never that great. But as long as the core things you do are interesting and you enjoy doing the 80%, then you're good. And I'd recommend anybody to get involved with a startup, get involved, you know, have a side hustle because it keeps things interesting. The one thing that I found with the startup that's been potentially some of the hardest is the business aspect of trying to sell. Mm. So if you're an engineer and you're brilliant at solving the problem, how do you find and how do you get in front of customers in order to explain more about your product? And how do you do it in a way that you try and express the business value to them they will get from using it? And one of the real challenges of being an engineer and solving a problem is you want to tell them how you solve the problem. You want to talk all about what you do. And they're like, that's great. I still don't understand how this helps me. And so you have to try and switch from doing you and talking more about them and what they get out of it. And that's been one of the, and then how do you actually reach out and talk to people, especially in the cybersecurity space where every CISO in the world is inundated with marketing, with spam, with job offers. How do you break through the noise and how do you get in front of people? And how do you avoid getting eaten by your dog next door? <laughs> I love dogs. That's fine. It's pretty interesting because it's, um, you know, as, as a cybersecurity vendor, you're solving problems, companies' problems in, in cybersecurity, at least some of their problems. But <laughs> I, I mean, the, the real competition is really the, at the end of the day, the sales. So it's, it's a bummer, right? Yeah. People buy from people fundamentally. And you got to make that connection. And especially as a startup, how do you engender trust? I mean, we don't all have industry names that everybody knows and just nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Well, you would love to be in that position to say nobody ever got fired for hiring Turgensec. But how do you build it? How do you get to that point? So I spend a lot of my time you know, listening to things like Stratechery. There's a Ben Thompson is a well-known commentator on tech strategy, and he had a company called and a newsletter called Stratechery. And it's just trying to understand how startups can succeed, how they can differentiate, and how they can disrupt the their initial market. So a lot of what we're doing today is how do we disrupt within Turgensec the attack surface management market? And one of those ways is as you, I mean, you work a lot in, in threat intelligence and potentially in the SOC. The one thing that we are inundated with is data. We're just flooded with it. And the only way to solve all of that data is to throw it into a seam, you know, an incident, security incident event management tool, a curator, something else to parse it, and then use machine learning to try and extract the intelligence out of it. So we've gotten into the habit of saying, what I need is more data, and then I'll use complex machines to try and extract that. And so when Turgensec, the sort of the disruptive approach that we're taking is to combine artificial intelligence, machine learning with human intelligence. So we combine them together so that the output of what we deliver is a curated list of known things you need to look, you know, address. So instead of doing the attack surface management and coming back with, here are your 200,000 endpoints and there, here are the 500,000 CVEs associated with them. Do something about that. Well, who the hell can actually deal with that? We would much rather say, all right, of that 200,000, 
we've gone through, narrowed it down, and then actually done the human analysis, looked at them. Here are the 20 which are exposing data, doing something wrong, potentially look weird. You need to do something about it. So we've already done that pre-curated list. And that's thrown some customers because they say, but do I ingest what you create and just put it into my seam? That, that's, that's how I should handle it. And going back to that resiliency we were talking about really earlier, Simon, of constantly asking why. Well, why do you want me to give you all that data? You're not going to do anything with it. What I want to tell you is actually, what's the most impactful thing for you? What's the things that you need to do now that you're not aware of? Because I'm pretty sure you're covering off the majority of the other boring, normal, typical CVE stuff. I want to tell you something you don't know. And that takes a bit of time and that takes a bit of education. So that sales cycle is always more challenging because you're trying to do something which is disruptive. But once they get it and once they then experience it and go, oh, okay, that's what you're doing, suddenly they're a convert. And there's nobody as zealous as a convert. And so that's 100% where we want to get to as a startup. And that's how you gain that, you know, become viral is because when you solve the problem, the customer ends up going, and when I say the customer, the SOC analyst, the CISO, the person suddenly goes, what you're giving me is valuable and is so much better than that generic open source intelligence stuff that I was just a generic feed I was getting. I'll still have to do that because I'll still get some intelligence from that. But actually, what you're giving me is you know, something which I was not getting from any other product. That's where we want to get to. And that's the only way I can see sort of break through that sales noise is not to try and do that comparison of we are just like everybody else or we are in the Gartner magic quadrant. Oh my God, you know, yeah. No, no, no. How about I say, here is how I'm going to make your job easier. That's what I want to do. Alex, it's been so interesting. And I mean, uh, I couldn't think that uh, we'll, we'll end up learning from you so much, learning about what you do, where you came from. And I'll just I'll also get a job offer, which is great. <laughs> That's always welcome. I, I, noticed, very, very I didn't notice time. I didn't yeah. get one, by the way. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, Not yet. Yeah, well, work for Talis. I've got a lot of French people already. So, you know, we're trying to spread the knowledge around. Yeah. I grew up with French people. I've, I've had enough. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been fun. Thank you so much for being with us and looking forward to our next time. Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely come back. There's so much more I want to talk about. Deception. Anytime. Oh, brilliant topic. <laughs> 